Welcome to It's the Pictures That Got Small, a movie club for the stuck at home. I'm Nate DeMeo. And I'm Karina Longworth. This week, we'll talk John Ford's The Grapes of Wrath. We'll play a game. We'll raise some money to try and keep the lights on at your favorite independent cinemas and film societies. And we'll spin the wheel when we catch up on things that we've been watching while sheltering in place. We'll start here with our guest, a comedy writer who's written for shows like The Good Place and Parks and Rec and The Simpsons and Silicon Valley and so many more shows you just might love. And she is a two-time Emmy nominee for her web series, An Emmy for Megan. Here's Megan Amrat. I have been watching a lot and I'm trying to use this time as a way to work through some of the movies that I just have blind spots for. So this podcast is amazingly relevant to my life. But I last night watched Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always, which I thought was amazing. Um, Got just like a very specific small movie about a teenage girl going to New York City to get an abortion because she can't in rural Pennsylvania without her parents' permission. And I did find, other than a lot of the other like weighty themes of that movie, that seeing people on the subway and seeing people just like walking in New York City was extremely (laughs) triggering based on how we're all living our lives now. I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I was ever that close to another person. (laughs) I have the same reaction. Like if you show me some movie that takes place in a city in the last couple of years and watching them touch their face and going like the equivalent of saying like, don't go into the woods, teenager, there's a killer out there. (laughs) I watch a ton of movies I would say about myself, but I uh, have this like huge blind spot for like 90s, 2000s action movies. I have always attributed it to the fact that I grew up with a single mother who didn't really like those movies. And I was like, I got to watch all these dad movies (laughs) while I'm in lockdown. And so I watched The Rock for the first time recently, which is an amazing movie. I've never I'd seen like it. To, uh, we'll do an addendum podcast about The Rock, <laughs> which probably couldn't be more different from The Grapes of Wrath. But like Nicolas Cage being crazy, a ton of explosions, a really crazy high concept. I know I'm coming to it like 30 years late, but it's great. That's oh, great. <laughs> How about you, Karina? Ryan, my husband, who was the guest on the first episode of the show, he and I um, had just kind of got into a situation of like passive aggressively being like, you choose what we watch. No, you choose what we watch. And so I created an innovation in our household. I basically made a list of every movie I could think about that like we had talked about. Oh, we should watch that sometime. Plus like some deep cuts of directors that I'm trying to get to know better. Plus some, you know, Criterion Blu-rays that we had lying around. Mm. And we put it in an app that um, can randomize any Uh list. And so every night that we're going to watch something, like we press the random button and it tells us what we're going to watch. First of all, would you ever reveal this list? We've already watched through the randomizer, um, Melvin and Howard. Oh, I love Melvin and Howard. The Jonathan Demme movie. Yeah. Yeah, it's fucking incredible. And I, you know, I didn't watch it when I was writing my Howard Hughes book because I had been led to believe that it was a real cartoon portrait of Howard Hughes. And I think that's fair, but it's also mostly not about Howard Hughes. It's mostly about this guy, Melvin Dumar, like who's just at this fuck up who's trying to stay married to Mary Steenburgen. <laughs> and um, it's super awesome. And then what else have we watched? Uh, oh, we watched Down and Out in Beverly Hills, mm-hmm. thanks to the randomizer, <laughs> which I had never seen before and is a fun watch. At certain points, you're kind of like putting your head in your hands and being like, oh, Mazursky, you went there. But um, it is definitely worth it for like hot Richard Dreyfus. <laughs> 
hot Nick Nolte. Like you do actually for the first time, I was like, oh, yeah, I understand why Nick Nolte was the People magazine's sexiest man alive. This is the first week where I felt like I needed to watch movies for comfort in that it's been a sort of a, a extra busy work week for me and I can really only watch stuff at night and want to watch stuff at night. Um, but I've also kind of found that things that are frankly just sort of like too intense um, get rough before bed. And then like suddenly I, I find my, my head sort of spinning at night. Um, I caught a little bit of lethal weapon. Mm. I thought to myself like, Oh, like feel like watching like an eighties style buddy comedy and so then I went and kind of sought out this movie that I've like almost watched on planes a million times. The Nice Guys, the Shane Black movie. Um, yes. Oh, yeah. With Russell Crowe and Ryan Gosling as unlikely detective pairing, tracking Margaret Qualley through 1979 L.A. All I needed it to do was work for me on an evening to unwind. And it's a very diverting movie. And then in a similar note, I was like, oh, what other diverting uh, genres do I enjoy? And I like a movie with cold, pasty white people striving for musical greatness, you know, <laughs> whether it's The Commitments or whether it is Billy Elliot or whether it is Once. And so I watched um, that movie Wild Rose, which came out a couple of years ago. Oh, oh with right. Jesse Buckley, uh, who's wonderful, plays a Glaswegian woman who uh, dreams of going to Nashville. It has some edge. It has some heart. It has good songs. And totally also work for me. Just to go back to the topic of of wanting to scream when people get too close to each other and stuff. Yeah. Um, so we were just listening to like my Spotify liked tracks on random, and this song came on by this guy named Dinner. Do you know this guy? I don't know Dinner. He's a Danish like electro producer, <laughs> and I think I'm five years late to him, but he basically sounds like a Muppet doing like Howard Jones songs, you know, big cocaine synth songs from the eighties. And he has this song called Going Out, where he's like, Do you think about going out tonight? <laughs> Ryan and I were just like joking that like this is the most, you know, dangerous song <laughs> that could possibly be. And then I had never seen the music video, so we watched the music video, and it's this guy who calls himself Dinner, like mostly sitting in an armchair singing about maybe going out tonight. And like the whole time you're like watching the video and just saying, dinner, don't do it. Don't go to the party. <laughs> Karina, tell us a little bit about The Grapes of Wrath. I shall. So there was a good Time magazine story by Richard Corliss published on the 75th anniversary of the film that said that the 30s were defined by two novels about Americans and their relationship to the land. Gone with the Wind, which was about the owning class, and Grapes of Wrath, which was about the working class. Obviously, these novels led to two radically different movies. Grapes of Wrath got made because Daryl Zanuck, who had produced incendiary populist and popular hits like I Am a Fugitive on a Chain Gang at Warner Brothers, had moved to 20th Century Fox and had gotten tired of no one taking his Shirley Temple movies seriously. So he took a gamble on Steinbeck's novel, which had been controversial because of how negatively it depicted the conditions in migrant camps and the institutional response to the Dust Bowl. To cover his ass, Zanuck sent an investigator to fact-check Steinbeck's version wow. of the migrant camps and found out that they were even worse than what he had written. The film was written by Nunnally Johnson and directed by John Ford, who were both known for being political conservatives. Zanuck likely selected them to make the movie because it would inoculate the film against charges that the material was pro-communist. 
The two had also previously collaborated on another film, which I coincidentally watched last week, The Prisoner of Shark Island, which fictionalizes the story of a doctor who was imprisoned for treating and allegedly collaborating with John Wilkes Booth. That movie absolutely takes the side of the alleged collaborator as the small man against big government and suggests that when government tries to respond to a crisis, they way overdo it and are thrilled to use the excuse for authoritarianism, which was how a lot of rural people felt about the handling of the Dust Bowl. So even though Grapes of Wrath was inherently populist, Fox could argue that it wasn't socialist because John Ford would never... (laughs) Meanwhile, because Hollywood was not a democracy, Henry Fonda was told he could only have the part of Tom Joad if he signed a seven-year contract with Fox. It was early enough in his career that he didn't have a choice but to agree, even though he had already starred in some major films, including Jezebel with Betty Davis and Young Mr. Lincoln. In general, Grapes of Wrath did not have the massive impact within Hollywood and in the culture that Gone with the Wind had had the year before. And that's not a huge surprise when you look at the content of the two films. But it was one of the top 10 grossing films of 1940. Uh, That said, its box office take was dwarfed by that of movies that no one talks about anymore, such as (laughs) Boomtown, Northwest Passage, and Andy Hardy meets Debutante. (laughs) Fonda would get his first Oscar nomination for Best Actor for Grapes of Wrath, But he lost to Jimmy Stewart in The Philadelphia Story, which is a movie I usually forget Jimmy Stewart is in and which he is definitely not the lead actor in. When I knew that he won for that, I just assumed he was, as he should, the best supporting actor. Insane. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's absolutely category fraud. Like if anybody wants to write a history of Oscar category fraud, that's where you start. So but Grapes of Wrath in the end won two Oscars. Um, Shockingly, as I think we'll probably talk about more, not for Greg Tolan cinematography, um, but it did win for Best Director for John Ford and Best Supporting Actress went to Jane Darwell, who played Ma Jode. It lost Best Picture to Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca in a year in which there were 10 nominees for Best Picture. Rebecca was also the highest grossing movie of 1940. John Ford would win Best Director again and Best Picture the following year with How Green Was My Valley. And Henry Fonda would soon star in The Lady Eve, but then he'd go serve in World War II and he would be off movie screens for three full years. So later, this would seem like the peak of the first phase of Fonda's career. And that has been our historical corner. I love it. Megan, what did you think you were getting into when you watched this movie? And did it match up? Okay. I want to be extremely honest about (laughs) uh, my going into this movie. As much as I want to lie and say I read the book and knew everything about this. I feel like probably everyone has these. One of my biggest blind spots in like my literature education of which I've read many books (laughs) is that I've never read a John Steinbeck book vaguely knew what this story was about vaguely knew the themes of it, but like honestly had no idea about a lot of the specifics, which I guess is a fun way to go into a movie. And I've read since about some of the differences between the movie and the book, but I recently saw the searchers for the first time and thought it was very beautiful, but like made me extremely uncomfortable because of a lot of the uh, racial themes. Because it's extremely uncomfortable. Yes. (laughs) But anyway, coming into this movie, I didn't really know what the, I guess, political underpinnings of it was going to be. And was as the movie progressed, 
more and more surprised at how relevant it was to a lot of both political conversations that are going on now, but also what's going on, like literally in this pandemic. And the fact that like, as we speak, a lot of the conversations are becoming uh, who is necessary to keeping our society going, like who has the power in America. And I felt like it was exciting, but I also felt like such a rube that I was watching this movie from 1940 and just being like, we've just been talking about the same stuff for so long. And my boyfriend made a funny uh, observation, which is that we were watching it streaming on Amazon. (laughs) which felt like a really (laughs) dark, ironic way to be watching a movie about workers' rights. (laughs) It was like it's 1940 and there's a streaming service from the bank in Tulsa. It was like the one company in America is giving me the privilege of watching this movie. But it's very funny to me that they were like, yeah, we're going to make this really overtly leftist movie, I guess. And we'll just put some conservatives on it. So... Yeah. I mean, also the other thing, and I I didn't include this in the history thing because I'm honestly not sure I understand it very well. Um, But for some reason, uh, Daryl Zanuck at Fox needed to seek outside financing to make this movie. Like the studio just wasn't going to pay for it. Or I I don't know if this was normal in 1940. This is not something I've heard happening very often. Um, He had to go to banks to get money to make it. And he found the money to make it because the wife of the head of of Chase or one of the big banks was like, I love that novel. I can't wait to see the movie. Uh (laughs) And so just that kind of thing, too, is so Steinbeck himself was like really freaked out because he he was afraid that they were going to, you know, splash all this money on what was a really Mm -hmm. big hit, but ultimately really controversial book. And they were going to write him the biggest check in town. And he was worried that they were essentially buying the rights to this thing so that the movie would never come out. It's so funny because I think the locations and also even just like the painted backdrops they used were so beautiful to me. My reaction was one of like, I need to get out of my house and go to a big field (laughs) where there's nothing around because of obviously our mindsets right now. But it was like there were these moments of comedy to me before it becomes extremely dark and you realize that they're all sort of like faded to end this movie in tragedy where they're on like route 66 and they're jalopy and trying to get it to go and i i a comedy writer kept (laughs) being like oh yeah and there's our comedy scene they're all trying to pile into the family car and get to california then it's the beverly hillbillies right i was like okay so this is what you gotta do watch every (laughs) <laughs> wonderful old movie just pretend like it's a comedy and pitch it as a sitcom i found so much of it so powerful because i mean i read the book in high school um and remember it pretty well like it was one of the better books that we had to read in, in high school but never saw the movie and my perception of the movie is you know i can remember you know stills and images that i've seen and it's the kind of jalopy Uh, everyone piled up on top. And there's something so quaint about the way we talk about this movie and the way we talk about this book, if we talk about it at all, you know, it's Ma Jode and Pa Jode, and that is the only names they're given and Mm -hmm. the only names we hear. It's kind of amazing to get to know Ma Jode and Pa Jode at the depth that they're given. But even just the jalopy itself, there were these moments where I was looking at it in the same way that Megan sort of is and thinking about the inherent comedy in trying to pile into this car. 
But at the same time, the movie does such a beautiful job making you understand exactly how uncomfortable that is and exactly how yeah. hot it is and how it literalizes just how precarious everything is with these kids riding on the top of the thing. With They've stripped their whole lives down to the bare bones of things that can fit on this car and things that will be useful there. And all of it could roll into a ditch. All of it could get rained on. And the movie never lets you forget that. And I found it really beautiful. I thought the movie was extremely well paced. And I was really surprised by how it just sort of like had this forward motion the entire time. And it's all very practical, too. Like, and I think this goes into what you're saying, Nate. Like, my feeling the whole time, which is obviously inherent in the story, was like, they just keep doing the next step that they have to do. And there's no question about it. And there's some line when they stop for gas, like as they're making their way through Arizona, the gas station attendant is like, You people got a lot of nerve. What do you mean? Crossing the desert in a jalopy like this. You been across? Sure, plenty, but never no wreck like that. Uh, if we break down, maybe somebody give us a hand. Well, and Pajode maybe is, is like, well, take no nerve, do something, ain't nothing else you can do. I found that to be extremely resonant because I was like, yeah, that that is what this movie is about. If you are desperate and don't have options and are living in a world that is not going to give you anything, then the decision to just keep doing the thing that's in front of you is not hard to make because it's the only thing you can do. Yeah, you just cross the desert. Yeah. Yeah, I'm making a joke about like seeing it as a comedy or whatever, but those moments of like almost levity on accident either. It's right. No, it's definitely not. Yes, the thing that I responded to so much about that, your life as one of these Jodes, it's not just the pit of despair every single second of every day. It's like, like any person, you become used to the situation you're in and you find levity in it and... That is how I felt watching the movie, which was like, this is what we're doing today. If we're all in a good mood, then it's going to seem a little more fun than if we weren't. And then grandma or grandpa Joe ends up dying and you're reminded of how low the situation has become. But then like one of the funniest moments in the movie is when they're like, should we get grandpa drunk to get him on the truck? Yeah. And I also (laughs) like when they when they reveal grandma to the police officer and they're like, can we get her to the hospital? I I was like, I, she looks really bad. She looks dead. She's definitely dead. <laughs> the way it's, the way you see her and the way they sort of casually use her death as a strategy, because they have to, it's just like awful and ridiculous and absurd at the same time. The same with grandpa getting on the truck. It's like he has to get on the truck because they're getting kicked out and they have no place to go. But we're going to like run around trying to chase this crazy vaudeville man with alcohol so that he can get it. I have to say about grandpa, I am like obsessed with comedy performances from this time. I personally would have thrived as a comic actress in the 1940s because I only have two speeds. One is nothing and the other is grandpa (laughs) gumming his food at the table i would say i'm a very big actor and i that's not really in vogue right now and i really would have thrived (laughs) it's grandpa jude yeah i found that mix of like this sort of absurdity and tragedy like totally worked often when i'm watching an older movie um i am kind of thinking about like the remake version of this and i'm convinced that the remake version of this is worse yeah like i'm convinced that it is very 
edgy and it is very extreme and or maudlin or whatever but there was something about the artificiality of so much of this movie whether it's in Grandpa Jode's depiction of what in real life one has experienced you know seeing older relatives is so heartbreaking and tragic but also occasionally kind of funny yeah there's something about the over the topness of it and the artificiality of the sets and the literal staginess of the monologues there's so much power because everything works on this kind of like symbolic level. Grandpa Jode, for the kind of absurdity of his fits and the comic absurdity of getting him into the truck, it stands in for real stuff that is hard for us to remember, but that we keep locked down and it finds a way to unlock it still. And so even as I am kind of like laughing to a certain degree, along with the Jodes, as they're piling him into the truck, I'm also completely feeling like the sense of foreboding that, oh, this guy is getting on this truck to die at some point. And then he does. Yeah. And uh, I found all of those movements just as moving as I would have in a more contemporarily paced and, and contemporarily shot and contemporarily acted uh, movie. I found them just as compelling, if not more so, because of their strangeness. I was playing that game a little bit, too. And I was like, I don't know. I guess, like, is this the the 1940s version of like the Florida project, like a Sean Baker yeah. <laughs> movie or like a Deborah Granick movie. I was trying to think of what movies I love. I love both those directors. The, I, I know that, you know, the Jodes are a stand in for all of the people who had to go through what they did. And pretty much, I felt like they were a really specific family. Yeah. I felt like I knew the individuals in it in a way that was really powerful and when you see them, you know, just in their banal day-to-day lives and, you know, that's getting in the car, that's trying to feed themselves. I The scene where Ma is in the camp and is trying to figure out how to feed all of these hungry children while also, like, feeding her own family. Yeah. Didn't you have no breakfast? No, ma'am. There ain't no work hereabouts. Pa's in trying to sell some stuff to get gas so we can get along. Did none of these have no breakfast? I did. Me and my brother did. We ate good. Well, you ain't hungry then, are you? We ate good. Well, I'm glad some of you ain't hungry because there won't be enough of this to go all the way around. Ah, oh, he was bragging. Know what he done? Last night, come out and say they got chicken deep. Well, sir, I looked in whilst they was eating and it was fried dough, just like everybody else. Having to do the math. How about it? Well, I don't know what to do. I've got to feed the family, and what am I going to do about all these here? And not presenting it like it's melodrama, but just being like, okay, how am I actually going to figure out how to do this? That is what I think moved me the most in the movie, that it was just like really quotidian and was just like, okay, so this is where we are today. How am I going to deal with this? I'm a real person, uh, not a symbol at that point. Yeah. I really loved the monologues of which I like kind of knew they're so famous and I'm always kind of a sucker for a monologue, but I love the way they are these characters who are not usually the ones who get to pontificate about like what the world means because they are low status, poor people who are not who you're used to hearing in classical plays, I guess it felt very powerful to me that 
these people who have just been like taking their journey step by step for most of the movie all of a sudden and get to start like making broad generalizations about the world, what the world means. Hey, Karina, can you give me a little bit of John Ford grounding in terms of who John Ford was in the public imagination on the fly? Yeah. So John Ford was around for fucking ever. Mm-hmm. Um, he started directing movies in like, I don't know, 1919 or something. Um, he directed something like 50 silent movies. And some of them are great. I mean, he kind of, on some level, he helped to invent what we think of as being an adventure movie. Um, Probably his most famous silent film is this film called The Iron Horse, which is about the building of the railroads. By the time of The Grapes of Wrath, he had already won an Oscar for Best Director for a film called, I want to say it's called The Informer, because it's not the Steven Soderbergh informant. pretty sure it's called The Informer. Um, this was kind of like a, a golden period of his career, for sure, because he'd, he had won the Oscar for that. He won the Oscar for this. That f- Next year after this, he makes like this massive hit, How Green Was My Valley. Um, he was just somebody who worked for a really long time, made a lot of movies, you know, almost a movie a year from about 1919 until about 1965. Um, and he's I think he's kind of best known for... Not movies like Grapes of Wrath, um, but big westerns, Um, you know, something more like The Searchers, more like Stagecoach. Um, And, you know, a lot of those movies are kind of cowboy and Indian, um, and the cowboys are dominant over the Indians. But starting in the mid-50s, you know, he kind of starts flipping the script a little bit. you know, he you see a turn in a film called Ford Apache, which Henry Fonda is also in and which I definitely recommend. It's like one of the few movies in which um, a quasi adult Shirley Temple mm-hmm. has a major role. Um, and that's a movie where it's like the uh, you know, to some extent, the Indians are a stereotype, but they're also treated with more humanity than they had been previously. And the whole movie is kind of about Henry Fonda's like white man mm-hmm. hubris. Um, And then one of his last films was this big Technicolor extravaganza in the 60s called Cheyenne Autumn, which is almost like a mea culpa for um, creating this kind of movie cowboy and Indian dichotomy. As the idea that he's doing Westerns that question the Western itself and that, you know, are aware of himself as the creator of so many of those images. I found watching this movie and watching their journey West and having it be you know, in the hands of, of John Ford. And instead of a wagon train, having it be this jalopy that's going through the painted desert, I find it particularly moving and challenging. The idea that the same sort of migration, you know, is happening West uh, only 60 years after, uh, you know, the same people that he's depicting in these other movies are, are going on horseback and on wagon ride, but driven by desperation, specifically because it, it is the yeah. same John Ford images um, repurposed. That alone really worked. How do we feel about Peter Fonda? You mean Henry I mean, Fonda? Yeah, well, how do we feel about Peter Fonda? Let's move along. How do you feel about Henry Fonda? Are you a big Henry Fonda fan? Um, not always, but I think he's absolutely awesome in this movie. Yeah. If you couldn't tell from Historical Corner, I think it's a travesty that he didn't win the Oscar and Jimmy Stewart did, like, performance mm-hmm. to performance. Not Nothing against Jimmy Stewart in general. Yeah, I don't know. I just think that this is a really incredible example of how, and, you know, I think less Peter Fonda, more Jane Fonda had this too, this thing Henry Fonda has of being an actor who can disappear into a role while still being mm-hmm. a movie star. You do 
forget that you're watching Henry Fonda when you're watching this film, but at the same time, the charisma is still there. And he, it needs to be there because the movie is such an ensemble piece and, you know, there is nobody else famous in it. There is nobody else who kind of rises out of the ensemble as as like mm-hmm. a beacon of identification the way that he does. It's also such a well-paced performance. In the beginning, like he almost has the stiffness of like a Norm MacDonald or something. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, he steps out of that truck and he has a chip on his shoulder. He is a man who just came out of prison for murdering someone or for accidentally killing someone or, or righteously so or, or wherever the details were. Um, and as the movie unfolds, just deepens and he softens. And even though he remains a man of few words, he really becomes the man who earns the big speech at the end. Um, and it's a remarkable performance. Even the way that the it's such a funny way to start the movie too. again, mm-hmm. not knowing anything that was going to happen. Really, I was like, OK, so this is a movie about a man who maybe has murdered someone, but a very funny running bit about how everyone thinks he busted out of jail and he has to keep telling them he got paroled, which I do want to delve more into how easy it was to bust out of jail in the 1930s, (laughs) because it seems easy enough. Um, But that is such a intense thing to have be the first thing you know about his character. And then it to also in some ways just fall away as part of this hard life. Yep, this is just a chapter of my life. Yep. I uh, murdered a man possibly out of self-defense. I went to jail for a few years. It just is like one more chapter. But then for the next time you see him kill someone, be so sort of politically motivated or like righteous is such an interesting like flip of that i feel so silly also just as a side note praising both this movie and this book because i i'm just like yeah oh my god it really is a classic oh my god it's so good (laughs) everyone's right no but the truth of the matter is like you know it's great to sort of watch these movies that have been raised up and there's no better feeling than having it be like Oh, yeah, that's all it's cracked up to be. And for me, this was totally one of those movies. The other scion of a famous family that's amazing this is The Preacher, played by the father of the Carradine clan. His performance Mm. is also extraordinary. And like you were saying, Megan, the movie starts off so, uh, to a certain degree, starts off so strangely and has such like a, an odd, deliberate pace. And you spend so much time um, in Oklahoma before uh, you get to what I assumed would be the heart of the movie and ultimately kind of isn't, uh, you know, the kind of road movie. But when he arrives and meets, you know, the preacher who baptized him and immediately launches into a beautiful and searching monologue about lost faith. I ask myself, what is this here called Holy Spirit? Maybe that's love. Why I love everybody so much, I'm fit to bust sometimes. So, maybe there ain't no sin, there ain't no virtue. It's just what people does. I found his performance just wonderful and I don't have that much of a, like a, uh, a relationship to him as an actor um, and really kind of fell in love with him. I found that performance extremely haunting. And I also just I also feel like the part of the movie before the road trip is my favorite part of the movie Mine too. Yes. Um, because it it has it has a kind of mystery to it where you're still kind of figuring out who these people are and 
you know, what the sort of goal of everything is. And then when they get to that sort of rest stop and that guy's like, don't go to California, I'm on my way back, like, I'm warning you, then that's when the dread kind of starts to seep into the movie. But before that, it's like you can fool yourself into thinking like, oh, maybe they'll just get away and maybe, it, you know, they got to leave, you know, the their land is being taken away. So maybe there will be something better for them in the West. It's so sinister to run into that guy who, like, is laughing at them. Uh, before he goes into his own story, but, but to be like, sure, have a great time getting to California. I'm sure it's going to work out great for you. The beginning of the movie is disorienting in an amazing way of you barely know who Tom is. And then you meet Casey and it's just these like two sort of strangers who are being very weird in the middle of nowhere. It is so sweeping and beautiful when you see when you open the movie and to then have this abandoned house and like weird flashback is all really fast moving really cinematic and kind of nothing like the movie that follows in a way that i loved Mm-hmm. I was really feeling the kind of influence on so many like post-apocalyptic movies. Like when you think about like The Stand or Children of Men. Absolutely. Or the Road. I was thinking about The Road the whole time. Yeah. You know, Henry Fonda at this point, he's essentially like the person who has emerged from the bunker. He's like the person who has woken up on The Walking Dead, not sure what's been going on. And he then pieces it together, you know, while he's on this adventure, essentially trying to track down his family and the people he meets on the road begins to fill in the world for him. And when they are finally at the camp and Rosa Sharon's uh, new husband is singing beautifully and they're all sitting around having this sort of nice moment. And it then becomes revealed that, no, this mission you are on is doomed. You know, it has been doomed from the start. I tried to tell you folks what it took me a year to find out. Took two kids dead. Took my wife dead to show me. But nobody could tell me neither. I can't tell you about them little fellas laying in the tent with their bellies swelled out and just skin over their bones, a shivering and a whining like pups, and me running around looking for work. Not for money, not for wages, just for a cup of flour and a spoon of lard. Then the coroner comes. Them children died of heart failure, he said. He put it down in his paper. Heart failure? And that little belly stuck out like a pig bladder? It really was uh, chilling. And, you know, I, I haven't seen a better movie about the migrant crisis that is going on or about the refugee crisis that is going on or about state power stepping in that is currently uh, going on. And I can't really imagine a contemporary movie doing quite as good of a job uh, Mm -hmm. than this movie from 1940 does. It was such a bizarre and in some ways wonderful and in some ways very disheartening experience to watch a movie from 80 years ago that is talking so specifically about literally everything well, I won't say literally, but Mm -hmm. like including climate, like including the fact that the Mm -hmm. entire reason for the movie is that there was a unprecedented drought and it was dealt with in government bureaucracy, like in a awful way. It feels surreal, I guess, is the emotion I was looking for. Watching everything that has brought me into my house right now and what I care about for other people in this country and watching it all play out in a 
movie from nearly 100 years ago. <laughs> yeah, and their interactions with people at every turn, um, not only do you hear some version of, of things that people say today, you know, as in when the uh, gas station attendants sound like Fox News pundits when they're asking how these people can live like this. They ain't human. <laughs> well, a human being wouldn't live the way they do. Human being couldn't stand to be so miserable. How can you live like that? I wouldn't do that, you know, and they're standing there and sort of in their perfect white uniforms. So much of the dynamic that we all sort of struggle with, even just now as we think about like, you know, what do you tip the person that is delivering this food to me who is at more risk than I am, even though I am at risk right now bringing it into my house? Like, how do I get this $10 bill to them in a way that is healthy for them, et cetera? Like, is this choice that we're making about the economics of this crisis and the necessary things that we need to do and that, that the people around us need to do. You see it right here in this movie with everybody's lives is being upended by these powers that are larger than, than themselves. You know, whether it's the dust, you know, whether it's the bank, whether it is the leasing company, you have all of these functionaries essentially saying, I'm just doing my job. And when it all comes down to it, no one knows who to shoot. <laughs> you mean get off my own land? Oh, don't go to blaming me. It ain't my fault. Whose fault is it? You know who owns the land, the Shawnee Land and Cattle Company. And who's the Shawnee Land and Cattle Company? It ain't nobody. It's a company. They got a president, ain't they? They got somebody who knows what a shotgun's for, ain't they? Oh, son, it ain't his fault because the bank tells him what to do. All right. Where's the bank? Tulsa. What's the use of picking on him? He ain't nothing but the manager. And he's half crazy himself trying to keep up with his orders from the east. Then who do we shoot? Brother, I don't know. If I did, I'd tell you. I just don't know who's to blame. Because you can't shoot the dust and you can't shoot the climate. and You can't shoot the pandemic. It's really an extraordinary movie. The thing that is extraordinary to me about this movie is that there's still a lot of fear, I think, in Hollywood today about making really sweeping claims about the machinery of the country that leads to all this stuff happening. And there are individuals in the Grapes of Wrath who are, you know, kind or less kind. Like there's the woman who works at the diner who gives them extra candy. And it's like, that could be you or I, that's like an in individual. But yeah. really to me, the movie was about like organizing a strike, police brutality. Like the fact that in his very famous monologue, Tom Joe says like, if there's ever a cop beating up a guy, I'll be there. I was like, even that, the way it's thrown away in the Grapes of Wrath felt amazing and electrifying. Yeah. Well, you see, Megan, this is his Avenger origin story. <laughs> so exactly. in it the is. sequels. Yeah, this is first Tom Joad movie. And then we see him again <laughs> in the Dust Bowl Avengers. <laughs> be all around in the dark i'll be everywhere wherever you can look wherever there's a fight so hungry people can eat i'll be there wherever there's a cop beating up a guy i'll be there i think i know the answer to this but now is the time in the show when we ask ourselves was this a good movie to watch right now karina how about you? I think it was a good movie to watch right now for all the reasons that we've talked about. But for me, the thing that made it the best, I guess, for this situation is just how beautiful it is. Mm -hmm. 
um, because you can watch it and kind of not dwell too much on on how much it's about the lives we're living now, not just through the virus, but, you know, in sort of the American hillscape. You can kind of drift off at moments and just be like, look at that sky, you know, look at the majesty of America, even if a lot of it is shot on the Fox lot. Yeah, I absolutely think it was a great movie to watch right now for the exact reason Karina, a smart person, just said, which is that <laughs> it just like made me crave seeing the country. Like it made me obsess about the fact that I want to go to the middle of nowhere when I can travel again. But also I, I sit in my house feeling very angry at the injustice in this country. And I think it's good to feel that. And it's good to like fire yourself up. And so I, the political and social themes of this movie made me feel angry in an appropriately good way. One of the things I always wrestle with, whether it's when you're thinking about some world historic moment when everyone's lives are upended by the depression or everyone's lives are upended by World War II or the migration afterwards. And even though I've read a lot about all of the Okies and read a lot about and can picture all these different scenes, you know, from my reading of, you know, people living in the margins and on the edge, seeing the Jodes story in action and seeing all of the different ways in which migrating people uh, encounter these different challenges and the ways that the state can transform overnight and the way that we interact with the state and the way that, you know, people uh, in this stereotypical way both rise up, you know, to meet you with kindness and other people, you know, rise up to meet you with fear. It really was such a bracing and valuable and moving watch um, as I've been thinking about that stuff on the daily. I could, really couldn't recommend it more right now. Is it game time, Karina? It's game time. We're going to play a trivia game called Know Your Fondas. Oh, God. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, God. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you five trivia questions to see how well you know your fondas. The answer to each question is either Henry Fonda, Peter Fonda, Jane Fonda, or Bridget Fonda. Are you ready to play Know Your Fondas? As ready as I'll ever be. Question number one. This Fonda didn't have a starring role in a movie for seven years, thanks in part due to their suspected political affiliations. That's got to be Jane. It's got to be Jane. We got to go with Hanoi Jane. That is incorrect. Oh, God. <laughs> the, the correct answer is oh, Henry wow. Fonda, who in 1948 signed with the Committee for the First Amendment, a group of celebrities who defended the rights of the blacklisted Hollywood 10. Many members of this committee were subsequently blacklisted or graylisted from working in Hollywood films. During this period, Fonda starred in three Broadway shows before returning to movies in 1955. Good for Jane for keeping up the family tradition. I know, I love that. They're icons. Question number two. This Fonda has not been in a movie in almost 20 years. Hmm. This this has trick question written all over it. Well, well, I mean, I Henry's, I don't know the exact right. date of his death, but Bridget, when's the last time? Well, it's time been I a while, her? and it might, have, it might be 20 years, Jack- itch, I have to yeah, say. Yeah, Karina's a trickster, and I feel she like she is a trickster. <laughs> trying to get us to say one of the elder Fondas. I'm not trying to do anything. Oh, I'm just... Uh, oh, you're yeah. always She's trying to do something. She's got a smile in her voice. <laughs> exactly. What, what's your I, instinct? My instinct is that 
I think we I think we go easy. I think that it is Henry because I have a feeling Bridget did something, even though yeah. we don't remember it. Let's go, Henry. Incorrect. The answer is Bridget. Okay. What? Hey, you know, <laughs> when did we last? Her Bridget? last film was in 2001 and it was called The Whole Shebang. And according to Wikipedia, it is about what happens when, quote, a man, Stanley Tucci, on a mission to save his family's fireworks business, becomes distracted after he falls in love. And I definitely recommend you guys go to the Wikipedia page for the whole shebang just to see the poster, which is like Stanley Tucci with a mustache with his arms around Bridget Fonda, and they're both looking at fireworks. Wait, can we do another (laughs) podcast about that movie? That sounds (laughs) amazing. (laughs) Yeah, bonus pod. We might be endorsed for a very long time, so we might get to the whole shebang. I just uh, uh, watched uh, Big Night with my family the other day, and was questioning again why Stanley Tucci isn't the biggest star of all time, and and then when I hear about the whole shebang, it it only (laughs) makes me regret it further. All right, moving on to question three. This Fonda accepted three competitive Oscars. Accepted three competitive Oscars. I feel like... It's got to be Henry. It has to be Henry. So Peter won for best screenplay, right? But except it makes me think like someone's cool, famous friend couldn't be there. And <laughs> I, then they were like, hey, I'm accepting it for you. I'm really overthinking this. I think we're overthinking but this. Let's just go. Let's just go with Henry. Let's go, let's with, go Henry. with our gut. Let's go with Henry. We're going to go with Henry Karina. Incorrect. Oh, God. The answer is Jane, because Henry, okay. because Henry won for On Golden Pond, which was awarded a few months before he died, but he was too sick to come to the ceremony. So Jane accepted that one on his behalf, and she had already won herself twice. So it was both not a trick question and a trick question, in a way. <laughs> it's not a trick question. <laughs> I knew there was something about that word accepted. I know, exactly. <laughs> I, I feel like, um, if anything, it's just great to know how in it all the fondas have been. absolutely <laughs> that's the thing like i feel like they could be the answer to any of these there's questions. no one standout yeah all right two more questions to go question number four this fonda's grandmother married noah dietrich the guy who ran howard hughes's businesses while howard hughes was in hollywood well i feel like bridget is the only one young enough to do that yeah let's go bridget correct Bridget Fonda's mother was Susan Brewer, whose mother was Mary Sweet, who married Noah Dietrich in 1955. Okay, final question. This one is kind of a trick okay. question. This Fonda starred in one of the highest grossing films of the 1960s. Hmm. It's going to be like all, it's going to be like Peter, Jane and Henry. It's going to be some sneaky look. The 1960s. Okay, what movies came out in the 1960s? Let's work backwards from that. Let's on the uh, see, like so. On the one hand, you're thinking Peter Fonda, who embodies the 60s more than Peter Fonda, right? So I feel like that's the mislead. I feel like Henry probably had some some giant hit, and of course, you know, Jane is obviously also sort of a creature of the 60s too. But I feel like in terms of actual earning power, I bet there's some secret western that you know, no one remembers that Henry was the star of. Um, or was in like a mad, 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 mad world or something. That feels right. I think we go with Henry. Incorrect. It was Peter. We're we're too smart. Easy Rider was one of the biggest movies of 1969. Jane was in Cat Baloo, which made $20 million in 1965, but that was less than half of the gross of Easy Rider. And that was her biggest box office hit of the 60s. Most of her movies were not hits. And by that point, Henry was not a force in the box office. 
I think we have really learned here that we need to do our fondology a little bit deeper. Hey, Megan, tell us about uh, an independent movie theater that's near and dear to your heart. I wanted to think outside the box because I'm like an obsessive movie goer in Los Angeles. But I feel like a lot of people you'll have on this podcast probably go to the same theaters as me in L.A. But I'm from Portland, Oregon, and there's a theater there called Cinema 21 that was like our art house theater growing up and has been recently remodeled. And it's amazing. I went there a couple months ago to see John Cameron Mitchell have a screening of Hedwig and the Angry Inch. And then he got drunk and played live music. And it was like an incredible experience. So if you're in Portland or if you ever visit or just want to support them, I would say Cinema 21 in Portland, Oregon. Here's the part of the episode when we turn to you to help keep those places we miss going to so much right now alive. We're encouraging you to contribute to the Art House America fundraiser. This is a campaign organized by the Criterion Collection and Janus Films in Art House Convergence, which is a nonprofit association dedicated to sustainability and community-based mission-driven media exhibition. They're trying to raise $500,000. They're getting closer and closer to their goal, We'd love to have our listeners put them over the top. There'll be a link in the show notes and on our website, smallpictureshow.com. And even though I write for audio for a living, I completely forgot that if I said smallpictureshow.com, you wouldn't be able to hear that it was pictures plural and not pictures singular. So I had to register both of them. Anyway, let's find out what movie we're going to be talking about next week with Davi Waller, creator and showrunner of Mrs. America, the new limited series on FX for Hulu. It stars Kate Blanchett and Rose Byrne in a veritable 70s disaster movie's worth of stars. Hi, Nate. Hi, Karina. It's Davi. I have never seen three women, and I want to for three reasons. One, I love Robert Altman films. Two, I love films about women. At least I hope this film is about women, or else the title is very misleading. And three, I guess I love films that begin with the word three, because I love Three Days of the Condor, and Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, and Three Kings, and even Three Men and a Baby. So anyway, let's watch it. So watch Three Women and join the three of us next episode. Meanwhile, you can follow me at Karina Longworth. And go subscribe to You Must Remember This wherever you found this podcast. And subscribe to my show, The Memory Palace, too, while you're there. And you can find me at The Memory Palace on Twitter. Talk to you next week.